Good morning. Joining me now, I have an author of a book called The Stickler's Guide to Science in the Age of Misinformation, The Real Science Behind Hacky Headlines, Crappy Clickbait, and Suspect Sources. And his name is Philip Bouchard, and he is the author of this book, but also spent about 33 years as a professional software designer and manager. He retired from that field to return to his roots in natural science education. Good morning, Philip. Karen, good morning. I'm delighted to be here. Well, one of the things that I chatted with you before we got on the air was about you were one of the people who helped create the Oregon Trail. Way back, I remember on my Apple computer, it was, a, I guess, compared with today's stuff, a very primitive game, but a really fun game if I, in my recollection of playing it. T- tell us a little bit about that before we talk about your book. All right. Well, the original Oregon Trail, which even predates my involvement, came out in 71, and that ran on a mainframe and was text only. Uh, but in, uh, in 1984, MEC, the Minnesota Educational Computing Corporation, decided it was time to completely rethink the product and create a version for the Apple II that could be sold in both schools and homes. And I was lucky enough to be named the team leader and um, lead designer. And together with my team, we uh, created the product that is now considered the classic version of the Oregon Trail. Well, let me tell you, my kids today play, we have a board game called that, and they think it's the funniest thing when somebody dies of dysentery. Not that that's funny, but it's just, you know, the whole thing of being a a kid. And so did you come up with those ideas, or how did that, you know, I'm dying of cholera, I'm dying of dysentery, uh, my axle broke, my oxen died, all those things just are crazy to me that you came up with that. Uh, yes, I, I came up with all those things. Of course, <laughs> I ran all my ideas by my team members as well. And then one of my team members helped me with the research. So we both got heavily into the research. But the, the, the five diseases I chose were all from the literature of the, of the immigrants going across country. Uh, and one, um, dysentery is one of the ones that they mentioned. Because it's interesting, in your book, you talk about, well, looking at the age of information. And back in your day, there's a paragraph I'm going to read from your book here that talks about kind of where you got your start. And when you talk about the Oregon Trail, I'm sure some of the information came from these encyclopedias that you talk about. You say, as a child and teenager, I had the habit of frequently sitting down by a set of encyclopedias to look something up and then remaining there for hours, reading one article after another. It was all driven by curiosity. A question would pop into my mind, so I'd walk over to the encyclopedia to find the answer. But the page that answered my question would pique my curiosity about a related topic, so I'd open another volume. Soon I would be sitting on the floor surrounded by encyclopedia volumes, each of them open to one of those topics. And by the way, my mom used to sell the World Book Encyclopedia, so we had several sets, and I look back at that as the old-fashioned Google of our day. Oh, absolutely. And that was, to me, that was such fun to be uh, following those threads of topics and trying to connect all those dots. And in your book, you kind of do that, too. A lot of times, of course, our world is mostly online. If you have a set of encyclopedias, you can hardly give them away anymore. But now everything's online, and there's things like that we call the headlines. You, You title them the hacky headlines, the crappy clickbait. And those things send us down rabbit holes and get us all kinds of information and you're talking about the Stickler's Guide to Science in the Age of Misinformation. How much of that stuff leads us to misinformation? Well, the, the misinformation comes uh, in a couple different ways. One is that there are, of course, things on the Internet that are quite mis- quite misleading, just very little truth to them. 
But then there's a lot of things that are just slightly erroneous. Or you might say we develop our own misconceptions upon hearing certain words or certain phrases. And um, so there's all kinds of ways in which we can get science slightly wrong or very wrong. So I'm trying in this book to present the real science behind all these things. I'm not really dwelling too, too long on all the things that are wrong. I'm mentioning the things that are wrong and then moving quickly into what's the real science. And as you suggested, I'm also trying to connect the dots so that instead of treating it as a bunch of trivia, I'm treating it as a a whole interconnected set of ideas related to science. Because so many, especially these days in the age of COVID, you have an article, a chapter on epidemics and pandemics. And, you know, and today... The COVID-19 has divided a lot of people. It's masking versus unmasking, vaccination versus not vaccination. And you kind of define epidemics from the past and in the future. And talk a little bit about that, how developing this book, some of that applies to what, what's going on today. All right. So epidemics are a, a fact of life in the sense that uh, we, there's been many in the past and there will be many more in the future. Many of these epidemics are viral diseases that cross over from animals, so we can expect them to happen. But understanding why they happen, how they happen, is a, is a useful exploration. Yeah, just talking about deadly, you talk about what is a deadly virus, and you know, we've got the, the pandemic, there's people that will now that say COVID-19 is just like the flu, it's not a big deal, and then you go on to define the ambiguous meaning of what deadly is. Yes, because we can talk about a disease being deadly because it kills a lot of people, or we can say it's deadly because if you happen to catch it, you're likely to die. So that puts COVID in one cat- one of those categories and a disease like Ebola in the other one. So Ebola, if you catch that, you're, you've got about a 50% chance of dying. But only 15,000 people have died over many decades. On the other hand, COVID, once you catch it, the chance of dying is pretty low. But so far, it's been killing 2 million people a year around the world. That's because so many people catch it. So the argument I know some people will say is, see, not very many people die of COVID because look at the percentage. And as you explained, you look at the science and it's all how you look at what that deadly, how it's being calculated. Right. So if 2 million people are dying a year from this disease, it's a disease worth considering and worth trying to do something about although there's perfectly valid reasons for debating what is the best way to deal with it. Another topic you cover is global warming. And, of course, we've heard arguments about that, people saying, well, there's not really global warming. Look, it's really cold this winter. See, no global warming. How do you talk about that as being a topic of misinformation often? Well, one big mistake is to think that a single low temperature in a single place on a single day somehow just proves global warming. In fact, so many of those occasions when we do have a record low temperature in a particular place, most of the world at the same time is is experiencing warmer than normal temperatures. So you really have to look at the world as a whole. And if you look at the world as a whole, temperatures have been increasing steadily for uh, more than 100 years. And and that rate of increase has been increasing as well. Um, Now, I could go on and talk about, if you'd like, the um, why carbon dioxide causes global warming. Yeah, go ahead, because I know you explained it in your book here. Okay. So to explain that, I link three concepts. First, the Earth radiates a lot of energy into space in the form of infrared radiation. And that roughly is equal to the same amount of energy that the Earth receives from the sun. And as long as those two are in balance, the Earth does not warm up or cool off. The second concept is that light energy can turn to heat 
and heat can turn to light. So the Earth warms up by absorbing light from the sun, but then it cools down by radiating infrared into the sky, which you can notice at night, because at night when the sun's not shining, it gets cooler all night long. The third concept is that some gases in the atmosphere absorb infrared, many don't. Nitrogen and oxygen don't absorb infrared, but greenhouse gases such as carbon dioxide, methane, and water vapor all do absorb infrared. And if those gases increase, then the amount of outgoing infrared that is being trapped increases, thereby warming the world. And you talk about how there's a lot of misunderstandings about that, and some of that is based on using simple phrases or things that we use as descriptors that might not be accurately accurately scientific. Uh, some of the other topics you have in here are the lungs of the planet, no gravity in space, survival of the fittest, the five senses, high levels of radiation, killing germs, the blueprint of life, and on and on. And you even talk about superfoods and toxins and how there is misinformation about that. Of course, a lot of this, I think, goes to marketing and advertising. If they pick out some certain little piece of something that makes their product look good, is that why we get a lot of misinformation in the world? Oh, absolutely. When, particularly when it comes to food, health, nutrition, these are topics for which there's plenty of opportunities to make money by scaring people and uh, convincing them that they need to buy something in order to be healthy. So these topics of superfood, the topic of toxins, are two of the very um, most ripe topics for allowing people to be confused by misinformation. How do people discern the truth then? Because, you know, you might click on that title that says this new product will cure cancer or whatever, some outlandish title, and you go on that and there's somebody telling you that, how do you discern whether or not that's the truth or not? Mm. I've got two parts to that answer. One is that by learning some of the basic science behind each of these topics, you are better armed against being fooled by misinformation. When you, if you see things that, are, that seem to be obviously against the basic science, then you should be suspicious. But the second thing um, is that the whole nature of truth is, is an interesting philosophical question. We all want to know what is true and what isn't, but the question is how do we do that? Uh, ultimately, we all rely primarily on, on information provided by others, but we might trust different sources. So in my book, I try hard to reflect the scientific consensus on all the key issues. This means that I'm trusting the world community of scientists and that they have weighed the evidence and debated the issues in order to reach this consensus. And therefore, I trust that this consensus reflects our current best understanding of the scientific truths. So in writing this, how did you get to those truths? How did you know where to go that would make sense? Because a lot of people say, well, my source of news or my source of information is correct and yours isn't. Yes. Well, I, I do go to a number of different, a uh, wide variety of places, uh, including you know, starting off with some magazines, um, books. I have a lot of books by written by scientists. Um, I even do go to... Uh, Wikipedia to get a sense of what topics or uh, subtopics I should be looking for. I do also try to find some of the papers for each of the topics. I usually download a number of papers by scientists and see what they have to say. And I also look for some you know, um, consistency among the people that are considered to be experts in a particular field, uh, recognized by their scientific peers as being leaders, thought leaders in those areas. So how do you know that they're right and they're not down, going down the rabbit hole of misinformation? That can be tough. You know, uh, take a, a particular topic, let's say um, maybe it has to do with uh, global warming, and say 
95% of the scientists agree, and 5% are on the fringe and disagree. Well, you can't be 100% sure that those 5% are wrong, but the odds are very, very strong that the 95% who have reached a consensus are representing the actual truth. So I look for that kind of consensus, but I have to admit that every now and then something comes along where the 5% ultimately turn out to be right. And that's, it's rare, but it does happen, and it results in, a, in a, a big change in our thinking. So, for instance, scientists at first didn't believe the idea of continental drift, but now pleat tectonics are, are accepted. And scientists didn't first accept the idea that eukaryotes originated as a, as a combination of archaeans and bacteria, the cells having merged into a single cell. Now that's accepted. So every now and then, every now and then, that 5% turns out to be right, but not often. Interestingly enough, in your book, in the in- introduction, you say, so my ambitious goal has been to create a book that's at least 98% correct. The other 2% of the information I present might include facts that are misleading, oversimplified, or out of date, or slightly misstated, or downright erroneous. Realistically, 98% is not too bad. One of my favorite quotes describes the astronomer and science writer Carl Sagan as someone who was very often right and always interesting. And you are looking to meet that similar standard. So actually what you're saying basically is is there's no way to guarantee 100%, but there is the element of, like you said, looking for the truth in what is the most accepted. Yes. Um, also, another way of looking at it is that I'm really trying to get the big picture right. So if I have made errors, and I'm sure I have, they're mostly in subtle details that don't affect the big picture all that much. So I really do hope and I think that I've gotten the big picture right all throughout the book. When you go back and look at the days when you were working in computer and, and creating a game like Oregon Trail for, for the computer, and you look to see how far that the Internet has come today, do you think it's been a, a good change or a bad change? Or what are your thoughts on how things have really changed through those years? Well, I would say that, uh, as always, as so many things, both, there's both good and bad. And I usually uh, be, have a, I'm a glass half full kind of person. So I see the changes overall as having been beneficial, while at the same time noting that there have been some great harms that have come about. And one of the harms, of course, has been that it has fueled recently this split between um, people becoming, oh, going in different directions and, and becoming uh, angry with one another, dividing into these partisan groups. And the Internet is, it seems to have really fueled that. And I kind of long for the days when we were more friendly to the people on the other side of the aisle, so to speak. And what is your hope by this from this book, The Stickler's Guide to Science in the Age of Misinformation? What do you hope that people get from this? I hope that they get a, um, number one, a, a feeling of joy of science, saying, wow, this is interesting. Science is an interesting thing. That, and it's understandable. If it's stated in, in a certain way, it can be easily understood. The second thing is, I hope that by gaining this understanding of basic science, the basic science of the world around us, that they will be less likely to be misled and better judges of the information that they were, we were all being subjected to. Are there things you should avoid uh, when you see those things like what they call clickbait? Do you tend to avoid something like that because you know it's going to lead you down someplace that's not good, like you did with the encyclopedias where it would take you to one place and then (laughs) another place and another? Or do you do that and hopefully try to find out the truth? 
Oh, mostly I just avoid the clickbait now. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> one one of the reasons is that they often try to, to string you along. You they you think you're going to get the answer to the question, and then they string you along for ten or twenty pages before right. giving you an, 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 an answer that isn't even satisfactory. At least in the World Book Encyclopedia or the encyclopedias, you knew that there was going to be a limit, and you wouldn't have to be there all your life, basically, because the internet is endless. <laughs> right. Well, this is a, not a very serious question, but I'm going to ask you. So do you ever see yourself developing another Oregon Trail and changing it from dysentery to COVID-19, perhaps, that they caught along the way? <laughs> well, not necessarily COVID-19, but I certainly have put a lot of thought into if I, if I had the chance to do Oregon Trail all over again, what would I, what would I change? And there's certainly some things I would have changed because we were quite limited in what we could uh, accomplish at that particular time, a very limited disk space, very limited uh, space in the RAM of the computer. So, but now the world has changed so much that I've kind of moved on to other topics for the most part. All right, I want to ask you this then, Philip. What would you change in the Oregon Trail if you could go back? Um, well, if I'm assuming that it was just a year or two later, and so I'm still working on an Apple II or some other simple machine, I would mainly have changed what happens when when your wagon, when you You've broken all your spare parts, <laughs> okay. and, you're, and you're trying to get a spare part. That would have been the. It's a little bit frustrating in the, uh, right now in that version. Another thing, though, I would I really wanted to put in is more opportunity to interact with people, particularly Native Americans, and really get well. better exposed to the Native American viewpoint about all of these people coming through their lands to go from east to west, and the impact it was having on their game. Uh, that is the, the, the food availability and other issues. But also the fact that they were, some of them were entrepreneurs and they, were, would, they would try to sell salmon or, or vegetables to the, to the people passing by. That's a perspective we don't see very much. So th- those are probably some of the main things I would have changed if I, had ch- if I had done a new version just a few years later. Well, I can't wait to see it. I hope you do that, Philip, because it would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not happening, huh? Oh, um no, I'm kind of I'm kind of more into uh, um, science, and, and and these days I'm um, developing board games, not for sale, but just to play with my sister. So I have, I have one called Rare Earth Miner, that in which we 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 create mines in which we're mining the most valuable rare earths of the world. Wow, that sounds really interesting. Maybe I hope to see that in stores someday too. It's possible if I get ambitious enough. Okay. We've been talking with Philip Broussard, who is the author of The Stickler's Guide to Science and the Age of Misinformation, The Real Science Behind Hacky Headlines, Crappy Clickbait, and Suspect Sources, and Looking for the Real Science in Things. And it's it's been a delight to chat with you and uh, just neat to find out that your background with the Oregon Trail and anything new, other new projects in the works right now? Oh, well, I'm... uh, now, now that I finished this book, I'm having to. I'm debating whether or do I write another science book or do I go into science fiction. Two possibilities oh. there. Okay, well, very good. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and um, maybe we'll see one of your new games one day. I hope that comes out to be the case. Thank you so much for right. your time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Karen. All right, bye bye.